You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for February, otherwise known as Heart Month. Valentine's aside, if you're anywhere near my current latitude, you're probably thinking there's not too much to love about this time of year. Hopefully by now, however, you've developed a certain fondness for this podcast and the tidbits herein. Most of the TCTMD news team kept the home fires burning in recent weeks, looking into all the important studies coming out in the medical literature. One exception, Caitlin Cox, who stepped out to the ICET 2018 meeting in Hollywood, Florida. You'll find all of Caitlin's coverage under the conference tab on TCTMD. But to kick things off, let's start with one of the studies Caitlin brought you from ICET. We've done plenty of stories over the years about the shaky evidence base for IVC filters. It's not clear whether or not they're needed and in whom, or whether their intended benefits outweigh the risks that arise when they are left in place after the risk of pulmonary embolism has passed. More and more, studies are suggesting that the longer these devices are in place, the greater the risk of device fracture and other complications. At ICET, Caitlin covered one-year findings from the Sentry study of a new, partially bioabsorbable filter device by the same name. After about 60 days of being in place, a bioconvertible filament, which holds the frame and filter arms together, dissolves, permitting the arm to retract, leaving behind a patent lumen. The end result is a device with a reduced risk of complications that does not require retrieval, or that's the idea. Sentry enrolled 129 subjects at 23 sites, all of whom had DVT or PE and were implanted with the investigational filter. At 60 days, freedom from symptomatic PE was 100%, and no instances of tilting, migration, embolization, fracture, or perforation were seen. Two cases of symptomatic caval thrombosis occurred, one at day 8 and the other at day 31, but did not recur after treatment. This was a pretty preliminary series, not randomized, with no data as to whether those permanent components caused problems later on. Caitlin spoke with Kush Desai from Northwestern University in Chicago to get his thoughts on the study. He pointed out that he and others have shown, quote, an epidemic of IVC filters not being removed as intended. As a corollary to that problem, we sort of learned that uh, retrieval devices have issues associated with them that are not frequently seen with permanent devices. Um, and so if we're placing a retrieval device, we really should have the intent to retrieve it. And certainly that's how the FDA feels with their 2010 and 2014 safety communications. With that background, mm-hmm. it, it is it is an interesting device. Um, alleviates one of the issues, which is that of non retrieval of the device because the device auto converts itself. Yeah. So I think it it does a good job of addressing that question. Fancy technology tends to grab headlines, but sometimes simple things have the power to make as much of a difference or more in people's lives. Yael Maxwell covered a study that falls into the latter category. This was work that looked back at pretty simple, process-related changes made in the busy Cleveland Clinic cath lab network. For the study, Samir Kapadia and colleagues looked at the effect of operational changes implemented for non-emergent cases in June 2014. Before the changes were made, Kapadia visited other cath labs to see how different programs structured their services. Researchers also surveyed their own cath lab nurses, doctors, and other staffers to get a sense of what was working and what wasn't. Changes put in place as a result were pretty simple. Things like transitioning from a block case scheduling system to more of a pyramid structure to account for busy and quieter times, and switching to electronic whiteboards that can more easily keep staff up to date of patient schedules. You can read Yael's story to understand the other tweaks made, but the upshot was this. 
Comparing the year before with the year after the changes, Kapadia and colleagues saw significant improvements in things like start times, case and room turnaround times, but no uptick in overtime hours. Most important, employee satisfaction improved as well. That's not where the benefits stop, though. Here's Kapadia spelling it out for Yael. This is not just to improve the time efficiency, uh, but ultimately it leads to better economics. So, you know, you save uh, money uh, by, by organizing yourself. So, because, you know, we, are, we have a very tight budget uh, with the healthcare environment that we live in. And so we need to have, we cannot waste money. So there are two, three important challenges. The one is that first you have to have a champion. So you have to have a person who has uh, buying from all the people, including the hospital administration, nurses, and the physicians who work in the cath lab. They should trust this person to say that, okay, whatever they're doing, there's no agenda. It is just to make our system better. The second most important requirement is that that person need to understand and take everybody's opinion in consideration. Uh, because unilaterally, you cannot change anything. And nurse leadership and a physician leadership has to work together. It was two years ago at the ACC meeting that Stitch investigators finally came up with a win. Ten-year follow-up from that trial found a survival benefit for surgical revascularization over medical therapy alone in patients with heart failure, severe LV dysfunction, and coronary disease. Those findings spurred some to speculate, and by some, I'm talking about interventional folks, that less invasive revascularization may also be of benefit in these patients. Keep in mind, however, results from freedom. In 2012, Freedom looked at patients with diabetes and multivessel disease and, famously, found that cabbage was the better choice than PCI. Fast forward to a study published earlier this month that you can think of as combining the Freedom and Stitch populations. Canadian researchers mined a province-wide registry to look at patients with diabetes, multivessel disease, and reduced LV dysfunction. They then compared outcomes for those treated with cabbage versus PCI. I'm going to suggest you read Mike's comprehensive story to get the details, but the Coles Notes version is this. In this complex patient group, PCI compared with cabbage was associated with a significant increase in major adverse cardiac and cerebrovascular events over more than four years of follow-up. Mike spoke with a range of experts on this, including cardiothoracic surgeon Jayan Nagendran from the University of Alberta in Edmonton, who was the senior author on the study. Several of the people who spoke with Mike mentioned that plans are underway to conduct a randomized trial of PCI versus cabbage in patients similar to those tracked in this registry study. But in the meantime, as Nagendran told Mike, these registry results should probably give pause, given that Stitch was launched in the early 2000s and did not include a PCI arm. So I think there's been a little bit of a slide from what the evidence might suggest until our paper comes out to perhaps strongly suggest what um, we as surgeons think, but cardiologists and interventional cardiologists probably felt that patients with some degree of left ventricular dysfunction are probably going to have a worse outcome with surgery, which is why they were tending toward percutaneous coronary intervention potentially without objective data to suggest otherwise. Because as I said, the trials that show that coronary surgery is beneficial, like the Freedom Trial, which is with normal infection fraction. So, 
being able to extend it to patients with depressed ejection fractions or abnormal ejection fractions, important finding to help guide clinicians toward the best pathway given the evidence to date. Mid-month, heart month as you'll recall, Circulation issued a special edition of the journal under its Go Red for Women banner dedicated to women's heart health. We covered several of these studies on TCTMD this month, and I hope you'll go and seek them out. I myself took on a research letter that looked not at patients' hearts, but at the female cardiologists who study them. Harvard University's Carolyn Lurchenmuller, along with two colleagues, looked at three decades' worth of medical publications of NIH grant-funded research in cardiology, as well as in medicine more generally. What they found is that women who were underrepresented as first authors 30 years ago now are slightly more likely than men to be listed as the first author on a study. First authors, I don't need to tell you, are the ones who are more junior in their careers and typically do the hard work of getting the study done. You might expect that these women, these go-getters, over three decades, would naturally progress to represent a greater proportion of senior authors on these same types of papers, senior authors typically being research group leaders or department heads. Instead, what Lurch and Mueller and her colleagues found is that women, over the entire study period, remain 50% less likely than men to hold that prestigious last author position. That's what we call the leaky pipeline, right, is that transition from junior to senior. And I think what, what we've shown for the first time is that in these junior positions, we women, we're actually doing pretty well. So that's a good sign. But then we were really, really concerned to see that, you know, if you look at the um, general sciences, not just cardiovascular, where we see like from the mid-90s, women actually doing proportionally a little better in first author position, even though there's lower impact probably, then the last author gap doesn't, it doesn't do anything. There's not even a trend that this is coming up. I told you last month that we were using some of the quieter moments that winter brings to knuckle down with some features. Both Laura McEwen and Todd Neal took time in recent weeks to turn around these bigger stories. Todd tackled the prickly question of when interventional cardiologists should hang up their lead. Some of the most celebrated names in interventional cardiology have actually been a part of this specialty since its birth, meaning they participated in some of the most seminal firsts in the field. So when is the right time to step aside? Todd's story in many ways reads like a who's who of interventional cardiologists founding physicians, and you'll have to check out the story to hear about life after the cath lab. For a teaser, here's one of the past presidents of the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, Bonnie Weiner. A lot of us, you know, were very young when we started doing this and very early in our careers, and really our professional identities are very much connected to our being the leading, you know, leading wave of interventional cardiology over the last several decades. You know, so I think from that perspective, it, it is or it may be challenging to, to let go for some of us. You know, on the other hand, I, I think there's also, you know, economic issues, family issues, lifestyle issues things that make it more attractive to step back um, at this point in our, our lives and careers. So it, I think it is an individual decision. 
but I think there are factors that do make it harder for us. And certainly talking to, to my colleagues who have totally stepped out of the lab, the transition for some of them has been a little more challenging. Laura McEwen has been working on a story tracking the dispute over the ACC AHA hypertension guidelines released at last year's AHA meeting. As you may recall, the American Academy of Family Physicians announced mid-December that they would not be endorsing the new guidance and instead would recommend that their members continue to follow the 2013 guidelines put out by JNC8. The ACC AHA guidelines made two major changes. They lowered the recommended treatment goal to less than 130 over 80 across patient groups, regardless of patient age. And they reclassified hypertension categories so that treatment with lifestyle changes and or medication is recommended beginning when blood pressure is 130 over 80 or higher. In Laura's feature, you'll hear from both sides of this debate. Have a listen to this clip, which comes from Laura's conversation with David Ogurek of Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. He points out there's more at stake than reputations and opinions. Patients have questions about what's right and what's not right. And sadly, at the end of the day, patients are sort of going to be caught in the middle between maybe they're seeing a primary care doctor and maybe for other reasons they're seeing a cardiologist. And there's going to be this back and forth that when they see the primary care doctor, they're telling them one thing and they see the cardiologist and they're telling them something else. Um, you know, and sadly when that happens, the person that suffers most is the patient. That's all I have for you for the Heart Month Heart Sounds. I hope you'll check out our New Year's Resolutions edition last month and that you'll be back in March for a recap of what's shaping up to be a hectic month. I myself am heading out later this week for the CRT meeting in Washington, D.C., where I'll be joined by TCTMD's Micah Reardon. A week later, both Mike and I join the rest of the team in Orlando, Florida for ACC 2018. If you're going to be at either of these meetings and have some interesting news to share, please get in touch. I'm talking about new data that you yourself are presenting, or something you saw or heard in the presentation rooms or corridors that you think we should know about. You can find my contact info via my bio on tctmd.com or by tracking me down on Twitter. I'm Shelley Wood, too. It's always great to meet readers or listeners in person, so if you see one of us dashing by or tapping our toes in the Starbucks lineup, be sure to say hello. Don't forget we have two other great podcasts. These are Talking Points with Michael Gibson and TCT Radio. Find all of these under podcasts on TCTMD, iTunes, and Google Play. Over and out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>